Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Grung. I'm Aspet Bedrosian. In this Conversations on Grung episode, Hovig Manucharian talks about various humanitarian and legal issues in the context of several processes afoot in Armenia and Artsakh, following the Second War in Artsakh. This episode was recorded on Saturday, January 16, 2021. Today we'll be discussing various legal and human rights topics within the context of the recent developments in Armenia. And to talk about these issues, we are joined by Ruben Melikian, who was formerly Artsakh's human rights ombudsman and prior to that, director of the Justice Academy of Armenia. In 2019, Ruben Melikian co-founded and currently leads the Path of Law NGO. Hello and welcome, Ruben. Hello, thanks for invitation. All right, thank you. So, Roman, as a former human rights ombudsman in Karabakh or Artsakh, what has been your experience on the topic of prisoners of war? So, let's just talk about that. Uh, because point eight of the November 9th statement governs the exchange of prisoners. And we previously heard that they're supposed to be exchanged based on the principle of all for all, meaning Armenia hands over all prisoners in its custody and Azerbaijan vice versa. And also, the issue of POW exchange is codified in international law or international conventions such as the Geneva Convention. Why in European are we still talking about prisoners today? That's a very important issue for Armenia now. And all of us are with our prisoners of war in Azerbaijan. Our thoughts and prayers uh, are with our guys there. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, our government didn't manage to have wording in November 9-10 statement that would give us opportunity to take back our prisoners of war as soon as possible. I cannot say what was the reason for that. The problem is that unlike other articles of that trilateral statement, which had very strict time limits, especially the awful articles about giving up the homeland, the territories of Karvajar, of Berzor, Akna, and so on, which had very strict time limits. There was no time limit for uh, prisoners of war exchange. And uh, that's very important for Armenian side because we all know that we did have much more prisoners of war in Azerbaijani custody than vice versa. And what is important, we already handed all the Azerbaijani people we had, both prisoners of war and also criminals. Criminals which had been sentenced for life sentence and long sentences, other long sentences. For example, killing Armenian child in Karvajar 2014. I met with these two Azerbaijani people in Shushi Penitentiary. So we did give all Azeris to Azerbaijan and they only handed a small portion of the prisoners of war. And moreover, they did take even more prisoners of war after November 9, at least 62 people, and they treat them not as prisoners of war, but as criminals. So it's very, a very, very bad situation. Yeah, and in the context of that, what legal recourses does Armenia have in case Azerbaijan continues posturing and uh, and says, you know, these are criminals? If they're criminals, then that means that different rules govern how they're handled? Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Indeed, prisoners of war are, are protected by international humanitarian law, unlike other criminals. So uh, there are some cases in international practice, and unfortunately we right now have that uh, that practice too, that 
de facto prisoners of war are not given the status of prisoners of war and are given the status of defendants accused in criminal proceedings. So criminal proceedings are instituted against them. And Azerbaijan is now doing that trick. So what can we do is very hard to say. I do believe that unfortunately it's not predominantly legal process, but political process. The organization that I co-founded, the Path of Law, started to work with European Court of Human Rights uh, right in the middle of Second Artsakh War. And my colleague, Siranur Sahakyan, now leads the team. Uh, she is working with European Court of Human Rights and sent a lot of materials concerning particular people who are believed to be in Azerbaijani custody. The European Court of Human Rights was very active, it's very important, was very active prior to November 9, a trilateral agreement, and it started to, to be slow and not proactive after November 9. Why? reason is that when there is political process, the legal process becomes secondary. So European Court of Human Rights, for example, as a mechanism for protection of human rights, is a secondary mechanism in comparison with uh, political process. Ruben, what was the commitment on our part to release those two criminals that you mentioned? The commitment uh, stemmed from a November 9 uh, trilateral agreement, uh, which was not uh, covered not only the prisoners of war, but all other people in custody. And I think that that wording was there because of Azerbaijani side insisted to include that two uh, criminals into that agreement as well. Uh, so I guess the technicality is that since these new POWs were acquired after November 9, I don't understand why we have so many people there still, given that broad definition in the November 9 agreement. Again, that's a political process. Right. And uh, as many people in Armenia believe, we need a good negotiator. We need a person who can insist to take this issue seriously. Unfortunately, many people, including me, believe that the current leader of Armenia, the person who lead Armenia in this shameful war, in the war that we had so many losses, even many people believe that was a result of even treason. Anyway, that person is not able to lead the country in this post-war negotiation. We need good negotiator. I would like to add one important issue as well. Uh, when we talk about POWs and all other people in custody, we need to understand that, uh, first of all, we need to check the existence of that people. So we need to check whether or not they are in custody of Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is not cooperating with neither Armenia nor international partners, Red right, Cross, right. Russia Federation. So uh, first of all, we need to make sure how many people are there. We do not have that mechanism neither in November 9 agreement nor in January 11 agreement. So no mechanisms for understanding the real number of prisoners of war and other people in custody. So uh, that's an important issue as well. Uh, so Ruben, after the January 11 agreement announced in Moscow, the Pashinyan administration seems to be switching its focus to internal affairs now. And uh, specifically, we're hearing about legal reforms. Are you aware of what the government plans are specifically with these reforms? And what is your opinion about the process? It's very obvious that Pashinyan is trying to use his uh, remaining power to destroy the remaining uh, institutions which are still functional, especially independent judiciary. 
So what they are trying to do is to establish in this very hard period of time a new court, the so-called anti-corruption court, and to give the powers of preliminary detention issues, the habeas corpus powers, to that newly established institution. And they are going to have control over those who are going to be appointed to that newly established anti-corruption court. And as I and many other people believe, they are trying to make sure that uh, when they start, restart to make political arrests and detentions, the courts are not going to release the, those people in the habeas corpus proceedings. And according to their proposal, what is the mechanism for appointing members of this new court and how are they going to ensure that it's stacked in their favor if that's what you're claiming? First of all, the commission is also staffed by Ministry of Justice. And uh, they try to use their influence in uh, recruiting new people to become judges in, uh, as, a, as an influence of Ministry of Justice. Also, what they try is to appoint new members of the so-called High Judicial Council and uh, people who have uh, not good reputation, uh, especially Mr. Gagik Jahangirian, who was a military prosecutor in the very fragrant case of Matavis when he insisted that uh, three or four people were uh, murderers and they even got a life sentence by lower courts. But the Court of Cassation, which is our Supreme Court, in 2007 revoked that uh, judgment and those people were claimed to be uh, innocent. The same judgment we had also from European Court of Human Rights, where they also applied. So they are trying to use all people who are ready to take part in this process in order to be sure that judiciary is not going to be an obstacle for political processes and political charges. Yeah, specifically about Dagik Jahangirian, when I was watching his interview, he said that uh, he's going to be, I guess there's a distinction between an academic member of the Supreme Judicial yes, Council uh, and, I guess, judge. judge so yeah. do you know if that distinction applies to making judgments about issues related to what we're talking about? If he's merely claiming that he's an academic member, I don't know what that means. What what the, What is the power of an academic member explain. versus a judge? I will explain. Uh, that institution is a very specific institution. And, for example, in the United States, the same powers and the same functions are executed by Supreme Court itself. In uh, our system, um, the powers administration, of course, are not given to Court of Cassation, but are given to Supreme Judicial Council, which consists of five judges elected by judges themselves and five academician members elected by National Assembly. So they have very important say in establishing new courts and in formulating judicial uh, corpus. What is problem with Mr. Jahangirian uh, is not only his reputation, but also the formal obstacles. First, uh, there is interpretation of law of uh, judicial code that the person above 65 cannot be a member of judicial council, the Supreme Judicial Council. And Mr. Jahangirian is already uh, about, uh, around 66. He's already above 65. That's first. Uh, and the second, what we mean saying academician members. Who is an academician? Mr. Jahangirian, yes, he is a candidate of sciences. This is a Soviet scientific title. Yes, he got this title uh, many years ago. But did he an active scientist in, in law? When did he publish his last article, scientific article? 
that's also a very important issue that uh, needs to be discussed. So we think that we should take the academician member, the term academician member, not from a formal point of view, but uh, in a realistic point of view. Is that person a real academician or uh, he or she is just a holder of title which he got many years ago? Because he was a practitioner, a long-time right. practitioner. Okay, staying on the topic of judicial uh, reforms, earlier last year in 2020, the Armenian government was able to force the retirement of three constitutional court judges, as well as replacing the head of the constitutional court, Rai Tomasian. I'm and sorry, least... I need to interrupt. They didn't force that. They just changed the law. The three judges are still fighting for their rights in European Court of Human Rights. So they didn't get that decision. So it was not the situation that they uh, signed the retirement. They didn't sign the retirement. They just changed the constitution, we believe, unconstitutionally. They amended the constitution unconstitutionally because they needed to send the amendment draft to constitutional court itself. They didn't do that. And according to new text of constitution that was amended, uh, that three judges uh, lost their seats. It's uh, unbelievable from, for example, American point of view. Can we imagine that one day three members of Supreme Court can be said that, you know, you are going to go home because of something, I don't know. That's against the independence of judiciary. Anyway, so that was not retirement. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So what would happen in case, for instance, if they won their ECHR case? It seems like, you know, they already have appointed new members and there's going to be some kind of a conflict, even if the ECHR decides that this was not rightful to do. President in European Court of Human Rights, I believe it was a president uh, about uh, Ukraine, uh, when uh, very strictly European Court of Human Rights uh, obliged uh, Ukrainian government to uh, reappoint the, uh, the particular person to his seat. I think his uh, surname was Volkov, Mr. Volkov, to his seat in the Supreme Court of Ukraine. We cannot say what will happen. Uh, in Armenian, we have the wording. So uh, they cooked this uh, soup and I think they need to find a legal path to resolve the issue. Uh, so I cannot say what can happen if European Court of Human Rights uh, gets this decision. Uh, by the way, uh, as long as I know, the European Court of Human Rights gave the case priority. So it means that it will be decided in a short period of time, relatively. Not in 10 years, but in one or two years. And, and very quickly, do you see any of this changing or, you know, pragmatically speaking, let's say if there is a, a change of power in Armenia, would or could the new government do anything to change the situation? Or are we going to follow the same rule book that Imkail wrote uh, about this? It's very hard to say what will happen in Armenia, when the change of power will be and uh, what forces will come to power. I do believe and I will do whatever I can, uh, to bring back Armenia to the path of law, uh, to the rightful path. That's the only way that we have chance uh, to overcome this national tragedy. This is a huge national tragedy, not only because of Artsakh, primarily because of Artsakh, because we lost not only Artsakh, but also our pride. We lost not only Artsakh, but also our hope for future, for bright future.
and rule of law is part of the path to overcome this tragedy. Okay. Ruben, and as the last topic in our discussion today, I wanted to talk about the issue of realignment of Armenia's line of contact. And apparently this is uh, going on based on verbal or oral agreements between Pashinyan and Aliyev. Can such a verbal agreement have any legal force? What is your opinion? No, I believe that uh, it does not have any legal force. The problem is that even if we get this decision or something in uh, internal mechanisms, we already gave the territories to Azerbaijan. We cannot uh, ask them to leave that territory. So that's awful thing. Many people believe that that's a crime. That's a crime. You cannot give up territory by verbal agreement or something like that. There are three ways of deciding the state borders. It can be bilateral agreement. It can be a decision of a commission composed by both parties and also maybe other parties. And it can be a decision of international forum, international court, for example. So we do not have any of this uh, situation. So this is something that is beyond reasonable. So I'm going to ask the same, probably very ridiculous, but uh, also hypothetical question. So Pashinyan says that this is not a demarcation or delineation, but we've heard Tigran Avinian say that, use that word in the past, but let's forget about that. And so what if we're saying that this is not a formal recognition of borders, but I'm going to allow this foreign force, the army of Azerbaijan, or maybe let's say the army of Iran, for instance, to come and occupy Sunni without recognizing that this is Iran's territory. So as I'm trying to understand whether that line of reasoning could work, and we keep talking about the, this being in the context of recognition of borders, but maybe this is just allowing foreign troops to come into our land. <laughs> so how, how do you, like, you know... I understand the question. Yeah, we all know the situation, for example, in uh, Israeli-Syrian conflict. We all know that all international community recognize, for example, Golan Heights uh, as a part of uh, Syria, but for a very long period of time, many decades, Israel occupies that territory and is not going to leave that uh, occupation, uh, which means that international relations, political component is much more important than legal component. So I do not believe that we have right now a reasonable and short roadmap to bring back that territories. Okay. Thank you for your time, Ruben. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this conversations on Grung episode. We hope it was helpful in your understanding of some of the issues involved. We look forward to your feedback, including your suggestions for conversation topics in the future. Contact us on our website at grung.org or on our Facebook page, ann-grung, or in our Facebook group, grung-armenian news network. Special thanks to Laura Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. On behalf of everyone in this episode, we wish you a good week. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels, like our pages, and follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.